Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Premier League soccer season is heating up. Turn to Betting Weekly English Premier League on the Bet Rivers Network for the best bets and analysis for this week's features. Subscribe to Betting Weekly Premier League today wherever you get your podcast. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love Betting Weekly Game Bet Match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. The next thing we know, it's number two in the charts and we are getting vitriolic attacks from all sides saying we've sold ourselves down the river, we've, you know, all our heritage has been burnt, how dare we do such a thing, etc, etc. And everybody missed the bloody point, it was a bit of fun yep. and we helped them out and it just so happened it was a big hit. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now on today's show, I've got a founding member and, well, pretty near as damn it ever present member of one of the northeast of England's best loved groups. In fact, they're named after an island just off the coast of Northumberland. Now their brand of folk rock propelled them to stardom and they achieved great success, especially in the 70s, with three top ten albums in the UK, including a number one, which became the biggest selling UK album of 1972. And despite not being a singles band, they also managed four top ten singles as well, big hits in the UK. Their legacy lives on with lots of famous celebrity supporters, and I am of course talking about the band Lindisfarne. Now, their primary lineup consists of frontman Alan Hull, Ray Jackson, Simon Cowell, Rod Clements, and my guest today, Ray Laidlaw. Now, Ray is well and truly keeping the band's legacy alive, with lots of different projects, including an intimate storytelling and music tour across the UK, which from what he says in the interview sounds fantastic. So I'm excited to bring you his stories from my interview with him shortly. But firstly, as ever, a quick hello and some shout outs too. Now, as I knew we were having Ray on the show from Lindisfarne, who had the biggest selling UK album of 1972, the main vintage rock pod social media posts revolved around some other classic albums from that year that are crazily turning 50 years old this year. Now, I asked you which one you preferred from these four classic albums from different genres. There was the uh, hard rocking Deep Purple with their classic album Machine Head, 
the iconic platinum-selling prog record Close to the Edge by Yes, the biggest-selling album of the year in America that year, Neil Young's Harvest, and the iconic Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars by David Bowie. Four incredible albums, and unsurprisingly, you are all split. So thank you to uh, Kevin Williams on Twitter. He said Ziggy Stardust. He said um, he broke the rules and broke down barriers. Guna Girl agreed with him, saying it was like an electric shock when you heard the record for the first time. Mike Norris and Dave Alcock also agreeing that uh, Bowie's masterpiece was the best of the four. Uh, Ricky DeVito, Michael Tyler and Di Insko all went with Neil Young's Harvest. Some brilliant songs on that record, isn't there? Including my favourite, Heart of Gold. Uh, Close to the Edge by Yes was singled out by Steve Wars, saying on release it was the definition of prog for me. While Charlie Tarasas agrees, saying yes by far, a prog masterpiece. Sarah Rooney also chose Yes from those four albums too. And there was plenty of love for Deep Purple as well. On Instagram, Serenity2001 said, uh, Machine Head, it's an abnormal album. It's like a greatest hits album. It's insane. No one could ever do something like that again. Uh, Bill McHugh agreed, saying he got into Deep Purple before the other groups. Jonathan Serrano said it has to be Machine Head just for Highway Star. While Joey Micho and uh, Stephanie Nemeth also agreed with Deep Purple. Not everyone could choose, though, between those four. And a shout out to a friend of mine, Ray Atkinson, who commented, uh, come on, that's Sophie's choice. Well, I didn't want to make it too easy now, did I? Whichever you prefer, I guess we can all agree that those four albums are absolutely classics for sure. Now, as always, if you haven't already, do please check out Vintage Rock Pod on the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's great to hear from you and get your thoughts on everything as well involving the classic rock world and the podcast. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod and you'll find me just about everywhere, including YouTube, where I post some clips from the interviews as well. It's always nice to see the guests, isn't it, answering just as well as hearing them on the uh, podcast too. So check out the channel on YouTube and give us a subscribe on there as well. Right, back to today's guest then, Ray Laidlaw from the iconic group Lindisfarne. We talk about the band's beginnings, why they chose the name of an island, some of the stories behind the hit songs, reasons for breakups, uh, recent projects as well, including a TV special fronted by current rock star Sam Fender. And of course, we talk about the huge single Fog on the Tyne with football star Gaza. That's Paul Gascoigne. Now, as you'd expect from a guy from the northeast of England, he's a great storyteller, so I hope you enjoy this chat with him. Here's Ray Laidlaw from Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne began as a blues band under the name of Brethren, didn't it? And that's when you met Alan Hull. Now, what were your first impressions of, of meeting Alan? Well, I, I was aware of him. We all were, He was a little bit older than us. Um, and he'd been in, in bands, like proper 60s bands. He, you know, they'd gone to Hamburg and made records and everything. Yeah, yeah. We were still trying, you know. Um, so we were a bit aware of him. He was a bit of a, um, a bit of a enigmatic character. Didn't, you know, he kept himself to himself, really. But later on in the 60s, he, 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 those bands broke up and he, he spent a couple of years as a psychiatric nurse. Uh, and then he started, he, he, that, that's when he had a huge splurge of songwriting, really, that changed his life. Um, and then he started going out and doing some solo shows. And that's when I really became aware of him, sort of uh, 68-ish. Um, we used to yeah. watch him at a couple of gigs. We put a couple of outdoor gigs on and, and got him to join in and do stuff, you know. And then I ended up doing a few drum sessions with him. And realised that you know he was he was looking for a band really. In fact, uh, when he when he hired me to to uh, play drums on a couple of tracks, it, it, he was checking me out for a band he was trying to put together. 
So I, I sort of bit reversed the process and then invited him to join ours, you know, <laughs> so, which is what eventually happened about six months later. Absolutely. So from Brethren, you, you couldn't use the name Brethren, could you? Because there was a band in the US that already had that moniker. So. Well, uh, we, we were told there was. Uh, we never, ever heard of them again. So I don't know if it happened. I don't, I don't know if they actually existed or maybe the, maybe the record company just didn't like the name. You know, I don't know. But it was it all worked for the best anyway. Absolutely. So how did you settle on the name of an island off the, the coast of Northumberland then? Well, um, we were actually routining the first album up here in on Tyneside and uh, and. Um, we were in Rod Clement's house. Rod, Rod and I started the band in the, in the mid-60s. And Rod lived, lived just near Timehouse Station. And we'd been out for a pint or something. And we were sitting. And John Anthony, who produced the first album, was sitting with us. And just, we're just idle conversation. Somebody mentioned they'd just been up to the island a few weeks before. What a magical place it was. And John's ears just pricked up. And he said, what a fantastic name. That's what you should call yourself. And we sort of laughed about it, really. We thought it sounded a bit ridiculous. It sounded like, you know, if you lived in London, calling yourself Ealing Broadway. Um, <laughs> It was a bit strange, but but um, then we sort of got used to it after a day or two and, and checked it out with the record company and they loved it. And, and it's it sort of, we were looking for something that was a bit different from the run-of-the-mill band names at the time. And that certainly was that. And it was, it stuck, you know, it seemed to suit the music we made. Absolutely. It's been very memorable as well down the years. Now, let's go to the first album then, Nicely Out of Tune. It contained the iconic uh, Lady Eleanor, but the song in the album didn't make a dent really straight away, did it in the charts at least, but... Um, at the time, you were gaining a really large following from all the concerts and the touring that you were doing, and you, you were getting bigger and bigger, weren't you? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, we, you know, in, in those days, the sort of club circuit, which we were sort of on, was probably about a two-month return sort of policy. You know, so mm-hmm. you'd play somewhere, and a couple of months later, you'd go back and do it again. We were turning up at, at clubs sort of like early 70, mid, yeah, late 1970, and there'd be a queue around the corner, say, oh, what's, what's going on here? And then realise it was for us. <laughs> uh, so it was it was really developing fast. Um and when we were going down a storm everywhere, I think the, the fact was we were very different from everything else that was around, you know. And it was it was just uh, luck, really. It was timing. Timing's everything, isn't it? You know, we happened to be around at the right time. So that was sort of happening. And then the album, as you say, the um, the first album, if it suffered from everything, it was probably it was a bit diverse. We had lots of different songs, and we we didn't really think about putting the album together as a with a feel. Yeah. We just wanted to put all these different songs on. So in some ways, somebody said, looking back on it, it looked a bit like one of those sampler albums, you know, that Warners used to put out with like a track from loads of different bands. So I think maybe a lot of people didn't quite get what, you know, if you think about it, there was a song like Lady Elnor, which was sort of had sort of slight prog influences. And then there'd be something like Jackhammer Blues, which is a Woody Guthrie tune. And then there'd be something else like Clear White Light, which is a different thing again, you know, all very different. And I think it took a while for people to get that into their heads, you know, that this was all the same band. That's what maybe why it didn't quite catch on the first time around. Absolutely. And then from then came uh, Fog on the Time, released in 1971. And that really made you a household name, didn't it? I mean, that album went on to be, was it the UK's biggest selling album of of 1972? And and that helped propel the first album as well, didn't it? Back into people's consciousness. And and everyone really got on the back of Lindisfarne. And you guys became massive. Well, by then it was a combination of things. It was a combination of the fact that the album, the Fog album, was so good and so well produced by Bob Johnson. He he basically distilled the essence of what the band was about and kept it simple, you know, and that was a much easier album to, for people to get their heads around. And then, as you said, they went back and checked out the first one and the first one went back into the charts. But it was a combination of that, the album, the fact that we've been gigging relentlessly. Uh, there was a whole bunch of festivals in 71 and 72, and we were sort of hooked on everything because because we're a happening band. We were booked, but we were sort of like halfway up the bill on most of them. 
but stole the show on nearly every occasion. We used to, you know, we used to usually, our favourite time to go on was usually about four in the afternoon when there'd been about six six bands on. People were just getting started, got a little bit bored, uh, you know, and w- wondering what to do. And then we'd come on and we were like different to everybody else. And we just took them by the scruff of the neck and, and it, it really, really worked. So there was a, a whole bunch of festivals. You no, know, obviously there was things like Reading, but there was also an amazing festival in Wheelie. Um, which people have written books and made radio programs about because it was run by sort of the parish council thing, expecting to get 5,000 people, and they ended up with 150,000. <laughs> you know, it was a ridiculously huge thing. It, it could have been a disaster if the weather had changed, but it wasn't, fortunately. So there was stuff like that. We were fortunate to be involved in all of these events. So the whole thing was on a bigger roller coaster, plus the BBC, of course, because we were getting booked for loads of BBC sessions because of the diversity of the band. We'd be doing the blues show, we'd be doing John Peel's show, we'd be doing Night Ride, you know, Country Meets Folk, we're doing all of these things. Up to the point that we had this sort of running joke with Peel's producer, John Walters, that we had our own coat hooks in the BBC, you know, um, <laughs> because we're, we, we, it probably wasn't at least twice a month we'd be in doing a session in the beep, you know. So, And also we did an awful lot of colleges. And in those days, the university and college circuit was massive. So uh, consequently... Well, right in people's faces. Fantastic exposure. Another part of the fantastic exposure, you mentioned the BBC, was, was things like Top of the Pops that you guys performed on and, and the, the famous instance of you playing with the rubber fish and things like that. What was all that about? <laughs> it's funny, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, Top of the Pops was great, but that was like a little extra for us. We, we never set out to be pop stars. We never set mm. out to, be, to, to have hit singles, really. I mean, that was a treat for us. It was an extra. We wanted to be an albums band. But um, the thing was, again... Um, with Top of the Pops would be, you know, I don't know, six, seven bands on, most of them looking the same. It was glam rock time, you know? And we just thought, well, how can we be different? And that was how the rubber fish came up, you know? Something that people <laughs> have talked about, and it bloody worked because it's 50 years later and they're still talking about it, you know? Absolutely. And then the back of the success of Fog on the Tine, it was it was difficult for you, wasn't it? I mean, the record company were putting pressure on you to, to release a follow-up and, and the way that things worked out with that. Dingley Dell came out, still reached number five in the album chart, which is no mean feat at all. But it was the pressure that kind of led to, to the band splitting at that stage, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a combination of things. I mean, what we were managed by the record company, which you would never do these days, you know. But basically, we didn't have anybody to fight our corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't realise that at the time. We were quite naive. Uh, and in actual fact, if we just if we'd taken a year off in 1973 instead of breaking up, we probably would have been around forever. Who who knows? Who knows? But uh, we didn't, uh, and it just got a bit frustrating. I mean, Alan was Alan was the most frustrated because he he didn't have time to write, um, and also he wasn't mad keen on on touring. We had he had a taste of success in this country, and he wasn't mad keen on going to somewhere in, in Middle America and playing bottom of the bill. Uh, and similarly, he wasn't over fussed about going to places in Europe. You know, he he didn't. He had this strange idea. Alan was a, a born socialist and an internationalist, you know, in every sense. Um, but he didn't like going anywhere where he couldn't get a bacon sandwich, you know. <laughs> he didn't like. <laughs> um, and he didn't really see the point of singing the songs in Germany. He thought, well, they're not understandable. Of course, they did, because rock and roll's language is English. But he he wasn't mad. He didn't like to be out of his comfort zone for too long. So it was really Alan. Alan was the one that was the most disgruntled by the whole thing. Um, and we and we had we all had different ways in our heads of, of putting it right, but none of them really worked. So the, the simple solution, which was probably the very stupid one, but the simple solution was just to split in two. And that's what we did. And me and Rod and Simon Cow put together a new band called Jack Will Adden. And then Alan was persuaded by the record company to keep the Linders Farm name going because, you know, they saw the cash cow, you know, they, they didn't want it to disappear. 
So they carried on, but it didn't really work because it wasn't the right field. You know, it was a, it was a great players, fantastic musicians, but it wasn't what people were expecting. Absolutely. And then a couple of kind of one-off gigs, wasn't it? One in '67, and one in '76, and one in '77, and then and then you guys did get back together in '78. So so how did all that come about? Well, although we weren't working together as a band, we were still seeing each other socially because we had the same circle of friends. So you know, maybe not every day, but we would be bumping into each other at birthday parties and weddings and stuff like that. So we kept in touch all the time. And then somebody, I think it was the Newcastle Festival, because I'd, I'd been played on our own solo albums as well. I was still working with him musically. I think the Newcastle Festival wanted to put us on for a special something in 70, 76 or something. And then a young promoter in Newcastle said, just ask crazy. If you're going to do anything together, it should be at Christmas time, because that's traditional. But everybody, everybody comes home for Christmas, you know. So we had a quick chat and thought, well, that'd be good fun. Why not do it, you know? So we did it as a one-off and it ended up being three shows at a ball of a time, you know, obviously just played the old tunes, had a whale of a time and then went back to what we were doing in the following year, 77. By now, record companies and stuff were sniffing about thinking, hang on, are they going to come back? So we did the 77 show again, another reunion, but we recorded it. Basically, we wanted to have a the best possible record of, of Lindisfarne at their best if we didn't do it again. So we recorded that and then we snuck off to a, a little studio down south in spring 78 to try some new tunes to see what they sounded like. And we liked it. So we basically decided to give it another bash and, and book some studio time, start making the album and then shop around for a deal, which which, which we got. Absolutely. And um, you, you talk about that that process of writing the new album at that stage. And, and one of your more memorable songs, I mean, one of the endearing hits, was discovered when you were rehearsing for that album. And uh, Alan was initially... A little reluctant, wasn't he, to share uh, Run For Home with you. Can you tell us the story behind that? Um, yes. Alan um, Alan wrote all the time, you know, and, and because I've been doing his solo records and this, that and the other, I thought I knew every song he'd ever written. I thought I heard them all. And um, one day we were we were rehearsing in, um, in Rockfield Studios. And we were waiting for Gus Dudgeon to arrive, who was going to produce the album, but schedules overlapped a bit, so we'd gone a week early to start, you know, loosening up. Alan was just tinkering around the piano. And he had his book, he had like an old school exercise book on top of the piano with all his songs in, all the titles. And I was just going through it, you know, and I thought, yeah, yeah, you know, know. And I came across this thing called Run For Home. I said, what's this, Alan, Run For Home? And he went, no, it's not up to much. And he carried on doing what he was doing. <laughs> and uh, I was like, a, you know, a dog with a bone. I wasn't going to let go. So I said, well, let me hear it, man. He said, no, no, it's a bit of a whinge, you know. He says, I, I wrote it when I was really upset. I got a a crap review when I, for a solo show in London by somebody. I thought, I've, I've had enough of this. So um, eventually, I badgered him, and he started singing it. And I, I thought, hang on a bit, this is a bit good. And a couple of the other lads were still dodging around the studio, you know, putting guitars away. It was, it was nearly dinner time, so we are just sort of yeah. killing, killing time. And it came to the first chorus, and he sang it on his own. And it came to the second chorus, and they just joined in naturally, and it sounded fantastic. Coming to the third verse, the door opens, in walks Gus Dudgeon. And he, and he, and he saw, we were going to stop. And he went, no, no, keep going, keep going. Finished the song. And he says, my name's Gus. That's the first single. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Exactly how it happened. But Alan thought of it as a bit of a whinge, you know, like um, he, he was unhappy at the time when he wrote it. But in actual fact, if you turn it around the other way, it's a celebratory song, you know. And it was a huge hit. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the biggest selling single we ever had. Phenomenal stuff. I mean, and someone else that helped you when you came back, you spoke about the record company managing you originally. When you did come back, um, you came back under your own steam, didn't you? you? You did it your own way. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. Which meant we could, we promoted our own tours. 
you know, we had an office in Newcastle and the, the guy who had been the promoter, Barry McKay, became our manager. And uh, and basically, although he did the actual day-to-day stuff and, you know, did the business deals and everything, we, we basically agreed on everything before it was done. You know what I'm saying? We, uh, we were very hands-on. And we had a very successful few years after that, you know, when, although the hits dried up a bit, the songs didn't stop coming and we kept on making albums and, you know, and we had our fans and our, and our niche and the live thing got bigger and bigger. Uh, the next big thing to touch on, uh, 1990, at the height of, of his fame, Gaza, Paul Gascoigne, for, for any of my uh, North American listeners, uh, Paul Gascoigne was a, a soccer player, as you'd say, a footballer. He was a, an England darling at that point. Superstar. He, he'd start at the World Cup in, in, in Italy. And um, then he came along and you guys came back with, with Fog on the Tyne. I mean, how did that all come about? Well, like most things, it was an accident. We obviously knew him because he, you know, he played for our team up here and he was a great kid, a really talented young kid an astonishingly gifted football player. And at that particular time after the World Cup, he was probably, after the Queen, he was the best known person in, in Britain, I would have said, certainly for a couple of years. I got a phone call one day. By then, I was managing the band. I got a phone call from a guy called Laurie Jay, who we knew from London. He used to manage the Speakeasy and other clubs. And he said, I'm making an album with your pal Gaza. And we said, oh, yeah. And he wants you to be involved. And so oh, that'd be nice. And I was wondering what the hell was going to come next. <laughs> And he said, his managers had this idea. I'd met his manager. I didn't like him very much. He thought, you could just play an instrumental medley of a couple of your hits. And uh, Gazelle talk about his boyhood days. And Gates said, I thought, well, that sounds a bit boring. Um, I said, hang on, we'll have a chat. You know, so I had a chat with Alan. And um, at the time, you see, there was two people. There was Paul Gascoigne, the lad, the lovely lad. And there was Gaza, who was like a superstar. Yeah, yeah. They were different. And Gaza was a bit like he was a bit like Superman. He was a bit like goes in the goes in this phone box and puts his Gaza suit on and out he comes. He was larger than life and everything. So I said, why don't we make a track that you know he could be the Gaza character, you know? And we knew he couldn't sing. He knew he couldn't <laughs> sing, uh, and he couldn't rap either. But he could speak it. So we thought, why don't we redo Fog on the Time? Fog on the Time that you got to remember had never been a single. Yeah. It was an album track, but everybody knew the song, and there wasn't anything better we could do for it. So anyway, Alan rewrote it. And we did a, a basic track at our studio in Newcastle and sent him and said, look, there you are. What do you think about that? And he said, oh, we love it. Yeah, do you want to do it? So fine. So anyway, the initial thing was we did the track. I think Alan went down to London and got Gaza, coached him through the lyrics, finished it ostensibly to be a track on his album. That was all it was. And then they decided they wanted to make it a single and would we do a video? So we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then they put it out. The next thing we know, it's number two in the charts and we are getting vitriolic attacks from all sides saying we've sold ourselves down the river, we've, we've you know, all our heritage has been burnt, uh, you know, how dare we do such a thing, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody missed the bloody point. It was a bit of fun, yeah. and we helped them out. And it just so happened it was a big hit. It, was, it wasn't a career statement. It wasn't, you know, a new direction. It was a bit of fun. So how did you guys react to that then with all the, the vitriol coming your way and people saying you, you've sold out? I mean, you've built your reputation for, for two decades there at that point and then and, and then you're getting that sort of response to what was a bit of fun with a superstar. I mean, how did you guys react to that? Well, it was a bit upsetting at, at, at the time. At some of the things that people were saying, but then, we, you know, you just thought, oh, get a life, you know, really out. <laughs> it's one song. You know, it's not, not you know, it's, it's not it's not a matter of life and death. You know, it's it's a song, it's entertainment. So you don't like it, fine, don't listen to it. We're not going to be doing this for the rest of our lives, you know. It's just it was just a little sidestep, and and you know, and I'm I'm glad we did it because it was good fun, give a lot of people a lot of a lot of entertainment, a lot of joy, and it helped him. Yeah. And he's a lovely lad, you know. I've, I've told this story before. I mean, he's been through some really dark times as as Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we did that the video for him that day, um, 
we it was a 12-hour day. We did all all you know, like a lot of these things, budget, we did it all in a day. There were two other um film crews doing documentaries about him. There were a, a, a constant stream of press people interviewing him all day, plus the public, because we did a lot of editing in the streets in Newcastle. And there was a constant stream of young kids coming for autographs and stuff. And he never once refused anybody. Wow. He was charming and chatty and fun with all the kids all day, nonstop. And that's that, that was the real him. All the dark days were because of the problems he went through when, when basically people, yeah. people let him down, you know, and that's why he turned to drink. It's a very sad story. Indeed. And then um, something else that was sad, obviously Alan passed away uh, in 1995 suddenly, and that must have been devastating for the band and difficult for all of you at that time. It was, It's and it's uh, it's still still difficult. Um, it was, to, well, put it this way, it was the way, best way I can describe it, it was a, it was a shock, but not a surprise, because he wasn't the fittest of people. But it was still a massive shock. And I think we were all in shock for a few months. You know, we didn't just couldn't really believe it had happened. So initially, you get through something like that just by sort of, you gather together, don't you? And you support each other. Yeah. And that's what we did. We helped the family get through the funerals and all that stuff and keeping the press away because it was they were desperate for some dirt, you know? You know what they like. Yeah. Uh, so we kept them away from the family. We did all that stuff. And then we sort of basically had a little meeting at Rod's house and said, what are we going to do? And it took us about 20 minutes to decide to keep going, to be honest with you, because the alternative was just basically a dead stop on all that music. And, and we didn't see any point in, in doing that because although Alan was a huge part of the band, he wasn't the band. And if we didn't record his songs and, and sing, sing his songs, perform his songs, who else was going to do that? So we decided to keep going and, and just play it gently, play it by, see what happens, see how people reacted. And thankfully, the majority of people who had been fans of the band reacted very well. And we had another really good eight years. Yeah. Um, a couple of good albums we made. You know, it, obviously, Rod who was the main writer now, had to raise his game. And he did. He, he you know, he rose to the occasion and, and came out with some fantastic tunes. And the other band members contributed too. We made a couple of great records. And I think we did uh, some really good stuff in that last eight years. Absolutely. And it's nice as well recently that to see his legacy lives on. A couple, Just a couple of months ago, there was a, a great BBC4 documentary, wasn't it? Lindisfarne's Geordie Gedius, uh, The Alan Hull Story, which came out, wasn't it? That's fantastic to see. Well, that, that was I spent four years getting that together. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, from initial idea, um, but actually the initial idea was much longer ago than that. But but four years working on it seriously to try and get it made, and um, we were all thrilled a bit with the reaction, you know, because um, we knew it was a story that needed to be told, you know, because Alan was sort of basically in the back of in music fans' consciousness. He was there, sort of in the background. But most people didn't realise how good he was, and we wanted that story to be told. So so Ennis had a fantastic reaction. The, the yeah. number of people who have been in touch. You know, people who I don't really know very well, a lot of people I do know well, but a lot of people who I don't know well, being in touch saying how, you know, they're going to reappraise all of Lindisfarne's work because they didn't realise, you know, they knew a few songs, but they didn't know what was the depth of the quality of it, really. Yeah, yeah. And it was great to see the contemporary side of it all with Sam Fender involved. Yeah, well, Sam's a good lad. I'm not, he obviously lives in the same town as me. I've known him since he was a teenager. And um, we asked him originally if he'd just do an interview and he said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. You know, he, he was familiar with the songs. And then, when we were getting close to wanting to actually get the thing done, it suddenly occurred to us if we could get him to front the show, it would open it up to a whole new audience. And um, he jumped at it. And the BBC were thrilled a bit about that because obviously it, it changes the whole slant of the show. And I thought Sam did a great job. You know, I think he's got a future in TV if you get sick of being a rock and roller. 
<laughs> and you mentioned audience there, and that leads us nicely to to what yourself and Billy are going uh, are up to at the moment with the, with the touring again with Lindisfarne Story. It starts on March the twenty fifth. You've got a string of dates through to the end of April to celebrate the the fiftieth anniversary of Fog on the Time. But it's more than just you guys playing songs, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, basically, we you know um, the Lindisfarne Story is really mine and Billy's excuse to go out and, and talk about ourselves, really, and talk about our lives, the people we've met, the places we've been, the stuff we've done. And also look at the songs again, because we do the songs very simply. You know, it's just with vocals, guitar and percussion. And um, it sort of echoes the whole concept of the band, because we never used to turn up at rehearsals with the demos. Very, very rarely. Usually, whoever had written a song would sit down at a piano or a guitar and just play it. And we always figured if the song worked like that, it would work whatever we did with it. You know, you can, you can take it any way you want, but it's got to work in its simplest form. And that's what we do in the show. We play the songs in the simplest form, like we first heard them, really. And we use um, bits of quite a lot of video clips, you know, things people haven't seen, a lot of embarrassing video clips that people normally wouldn't <laughs> expect it to see. We like to tell the backstory, you know, and it's not really just a story, just a show for Lindisfarne fans. It's anybody who was into bands in the 60s and 70s who liked that the whole idea of the era, you know, because our paths yeah. crossed with lots of people and, and our story was similar to lots of other people's stories in some ways. And also it's not just the band. Because if you've been a fan of a band for years, it's your story too. So, you know, a lot of the things we talk about, when you hear somebody in the audience say, oh, I was there, you know, I, I was at that one, you know, whatever it may be. And it's a lot of fun. And it's it's quite flexible as well, because although we have a, a shape for the show, there's no script. So it can veer off into little sidetracks if something crosses our mind. And it's really good fun to do. It, it works astonishingly well in small venues. It's got to be quite intimate, you know, so we don't usually go any bigger than about 300. But that works fine for us. Fantastic. And it's the fifth chapter, isn't it, of the, of the Lindisfarne story? There's a few dates all over. There's even yeah. a few dates in Scotland, which is nice to see. And the best way to find out all the information is by checking out lindisfarnestory.co.uk or you can find Lindisfarne Story on Facebook as well. You can keep up to date with what, what yourself and Billy are getting up to on there, can't they? You can, indeed, yes. And if anybody's got a question, we'll try and answer it. Perfect stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Ray, and uh, best of luck for, for the tour. Thank you very much. And if you can get along to one of them, please come along. Be nice. I'll buy a pint. Ray Laidlaw from Lindisfarne there. If you're in the UK, definitely check out Ray and Billy on tour. Tickets still available for some dates, but uh, small, intimate crowds only, so don't hang about, get them soon. Visit lindisfarnestory.co.uk or find Lindisfarne Story on Facebook and you'll get all the details and keep up to date with everything that's going on with them as well. There's even a Scottish date or two, so I'll see if I can swing by and get that pint that he promised me. Right, it's that time of the show now where we do the top fives, and last week was dedicated to the legend that was Jimmy Hendrix. Now, unsurprisingly, there was plenty of opinion on Jimmy's best tunes on social media. So thank you to everyone who commented with theirs. Now, in fact, very few people mentioned the same song twice. In fact, 25 different songs were put forward on Facebook alone, which just shows the incredible depth of Jimmy's music and shows everyone connects with him differently. So with that in mind, I can't do everyone's top fives, but I'll pick a few different tracks out, like uh, Jeffrey Michalak going with Six Was Nine and Hendrix's brilliant rendition of The Star Spangled Banner. Darren Harrod's favourite was Them Changes, while Howard Plunkett's number one was Who Knows. Ronald Johnson listed a load of tracks. He did apologise and said he loves all of Jimi Hendrix's music and guitar playing, but he picked out one rainy wish, which no one else did. Darren Rocks included Third Stone from the Sun and the acoustic version of Hear My Trainer Come In, and poet Mark Beavers threw in Burning of the Midnight Lamp. I also want to give a shout out to Kiss the Sky, the re-experience, the world's number one Jimi Hendrix.
Hendrix Tribute Band. You can check them out at kissthesky.tribute.com. Brilliant they are as well. Anyway, they commented on the post to say, we love them all. Of course they do. So a huge thanks to everyone for getting in touch about the Jimi Hendrix songs this week on social media. But on to this week's list then, and obviously it's going to be Lindisfarne tracks. Now remember, this is my personal favourite list, the songs I enjoy the most. It's a subjective list, so it's okay to disagree with them. But here we go. My favourite five songs from Lindisfarne, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a tale of a drugs bust. It's one of those, like many on this list, that's uh, best listened to with friends. Played live, you'd have the crowd linked arms in arms on this one. It's brilliant. A sing-along chorus. It's from the first album, Out of Tune. At number five is We Can Swing Together. We can swing together. At four is a song that doesn't get mentioned very often, but it's great. It's a proper upbeat, knees-up sing-along song and appears near the end of their third album, Dingley Dell, from 1972. The judge is a grudge man, and that's a fact. At number four is Caught in the Act. At three, okay, okay, don't judge. Remember, this is a personal choice. Now, it is that song. Novelty, yes. Catchy as hell, yes. A big hit, also yes. Now, I remember it was a song that all the lads would sing. It was a proper lads anthem chanting along to the chorus. Reached number two in the singles chart in 1990. At three, for me, is their collaboration with Gaza on Fog on the Tyne. My number two song comes from the album made when the proper group reformed back and forth. It's a great melody, sing-along chorus as well, like they all seem to have. And it went top ten in the UK in 1978. At number two, it's Run For Home. And at number one is the opening track from their debut album, Out of Tune. It's a brilliant song, a haunting tale that became a big hit for the group, reaching number three in 1972. It's based on a short story from 1839 by Edgar Allan Poe, would you believe? Anyway, my favourite Lindisfarne track, the number one on my list, is the brilliant Lady Eleanor. But it's all right, Lady So there you go, my favourite five songs from Lindisfarne. They had some great sing-along anthems in their catalogue. And as I said at the start, that's just my personal choice. And I've always enjoyed the upbeat numbers. So sadly, no room in my top five for classics like Winter Song, Clear White Light, or Meet Me on the Corner, which was actually a top five hit for the band in 1972. Now, as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Where do you agree or disagree? Let me know your top fives. You can drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or you can find it on the social medias where I post it as well during the week you can comment below and let me know and I'll give you a mention on next week's episode. Now if this is your first listen then make sure to follow or subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on whatever podcast platform you use so that you don't miss any new episodes that drop usually every Monday and please do go back and check out the back catalogue of incredible big name guests. We've got Grammy Award winners, we've got multi-platinum selling artists and loads of Rock and Roll Hall of Famers in there so plenty for you to listen to and uh, next week's show as well features an interview with a former member 
member of Black Sabbath, a former lead singer of the group, no less. In fact, he was the second longest-serving Black Sabbath lead singer of the band behind Ozzy Osbourne, which is pretty incredible when you think of the list of names that have fronted that group. Now you can expect some fantastic stories on next week's show. But that is episode 54. Until then, though, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.